Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 432nd episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your host, Mason. Join my co-host today, Abe. Abe, how you doing? I am doing great. I had a fantastic time in SG Philly over the weekend, feeling all tired from playing Magic, but all rejuvenated in my soul. So, I love that. Well, maybe we'll hear more about that later, but today we are going to be doing an episode all about getting ready for the RC. We're going to talk about some stuff revolving the metagame and whatnot, because uh, Probably going to hear this on Wednesday slash Thursday, hopefully. So that should be exciting. Uh, and also there's some prep stuff there. But first, Abe, we do need to do Always Improving because it is the main point of the show. Also, if you're listening and you're like, oh, we're Spencer. Spencer is taking the week off for some personal stuff. So we'll have him back here next week. Abe, what was your Always Improving moment, though, over the last week? So my Always Improving moment has came down to a conversation that I had with Jonathan, a recurring character of my Always Improvings, as you might know. Jonathan's kind of who... Said something about specifically the red black mid range and blue red phoenix matchup in Pioneer mm-hmm. from the red black side and thinking about like being on the draw as a thought seize deck, like the value of that, and just like kind of getting into a corner of, of magic where like thinking about how the play draw matters. As in the play patterns more than just being on the play is always right or like mm-hmm. deviate from being on the play in the way you're like sideboarding or whatever so you have a plan for being on the draw but like embracing that idea to like how to leverage being on the draw in like the way you're playing and the way that you're you are sideboarding or even if it's better or worse for you to be taking taking the draw even in a competitive format i'm not entirely sold on it being right to be on the draw, but the way that he was sideboarding and the way that we'd talked about it specifically for that matchup, because he had decided to play the deck, play red black um, on like almost no practice and kind of like wing it at the SCG. Really, really challenged for me, like an idea of like just how Thoughtseize works and how a lot of, a lot of parts of, of the mid-range deck works. So it was really, really interesting. And uh, it's something that I'm going to be taking with me for, for a while as it often is. Okay, so this is really crazy. This was something that I had planned to talk about after the RC. Um, because, you know, w- uh, I- I'm working with some people for the RC, and there's some amount of, like, wanting to keep things, you know, close, whatever, whatever. And however I feel about that, I've agreed to work with people, and that, that is what it is, right? Like, I've agreed to do a thing, so no matter how I feel about it, I'm not going to talk about it. However, this was my idea, so I'm going to leak it, especially since I don't think we're going to end up doing it. It's so funny you mentioned that. When playing the Phoenix versus Red Black, I propose that we're supposed to take the draw as Phoenix. That's so uh, uh, insane to me. Uh, uh, unironic. so <laughs> insane to me because I think you're right. Yeah. Like, like I, 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 think, I think after, I'm after right taking the draw with Phoenix, or uh, taking the draw with Rakdos against Phoenix, like, two or three times uh, over the course of the weekend, after having this conversation with Jonathan, I was like, you know what? I'll try it. I was losing a bunch to... I was testing with Ben Nikolic because he was playing Phoenix. We were just, like, jamming games at Jonathan's apartment. And I just kept on losing. He was like... Then during the tournament, he was like, yeah, I just beat Red Black every time. I've been choosing the draw. This is how I'm sideboarding. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to try that. I can't win with anything else. This match was, like, getting really hard for me with the way their deck's currently built. And then I was just winning, and it made a lot of sense. But I was like, I don't Mm -hmm. know. I need to test it a lot more before I go on the record being, like, being on the draws is great but the fact that you're telling me that you think from the other side that that's yeah. correct there you go you can if you only got this out of the episode and you're pulling the rc 
you're already so far ahead of the game. This is the highest value episode of CC for I, for the RC. I, I, I don't know if you were looking at my face, but I was just like, did I talk to Abe about this already? I was like, I didn't talk to Abe about this. This was like a Friday idea. He was at the SCG. Yeah, so I'll just talk about it too because that, that was a whole point of it, like a whole thing, and it's probably a better always improving moment. So from when we were sitting playing the Phoenix deck, part of the problem was by being going first, all of your cards play into their reactive cards, right? Which seems to be kind of what Tukinik's talking about, where it's like, so if you leave in your shredders and you decide to do that, uh, we're, we're playing Thing in the Ice, so whatever your two drop is, you're playing into their push and to let them develop a threat. And depending on where you land on Misery Shadow in the new format too, they might have more two drops or they're still two Tenacious Underdogs to one Tenacious Underdog. So like you're playing in and letting them develop and then you probably go pieces of the puzzle and then they go go blank. And so now they're countering everything you do um, on like a perfect curve with both players having their best draws, right? Whereas if you... And, and that was like a problem just in general was like we were piecesing and then go blank was causing us a problem. So I was like, what if we took the draw? We just like held on to everything as much as we could, and then basically use pieces of the puzzle as a counterspell to go blank, as long as we have any other play possible. Obviously, don't waste your turns or whatever, but if you like could do something that's like pretty impactful, do that instead, then cast pieces after they go blank you to punish the go blank, and just kind of like strand them. And then at the end of turn, set up like opt-op, connive, put these in the yard, spin four mana, draw three off treasure cruise. You don't need to do that much to actually win. And that was like the whole thesis of my like, plan because we were like having people play Rakdos versus Phoenix and they were just losing over and over again to Rakdos and involving some weird sideboarding stuff and whatnot and then doing this I think it actually helps a good bit I'm not a thousand mature it's right but after hearing from your side too I'm starting to think we're more right than we are wrong and if it's not right it is not wrong by so much you know yeah. what I mean yeah I think so we might have to debrief after that? the episode on this one because okay. this is that, that, this, this is, is too much fun. of a coincidence. I can't. I, I'm shook. I'm shook to my yeah. core. Yeah, that's really funny. I, uh, I, yeah, I, this is one of the things that I was like, yeah, we're, we'll talk about. Because there's like, I mean, even on Friday, I kind of have a Twitter thread of things that are like, these are things we didn't do. These are things, ideas we had or whatever. And maybe this one can't be on the Twitter thread or whatever. I don't know. I guess it's on the episode, so it's fine. But it's like, uh, there's a bunch of things I think are really interesting and a lot of thoughts and ideas that are challenged in Pioneer, I think, after having played a bunch of Pioneer and trying really to succeed and do well in the format, that I can't tell if I'm lost in the sauce and I'm just, like, coping, or if, like, it's true and people are just not acting that way in public settings. You know what I mean? Like, like for example, I still think Green's one of the best decks by, like, a large margin, but I think some of the things that I've seen around the format in relation to that are not as clear-cut as I think people have made them out to be, which is, I think, always true. Pioneer's been more explored but a little underexplored with a critical eye and i'm going to be super interested once all the rcs are done across the world to see what pioneer looks like because i think it's going to look fairly different than it is now but not like drastically different if that makes sense yeah yeah i think that just having high level pioneer play occur for like a you know like you're basically gonna have how many regions there like five seven regions or something us, Canada, APAC, Europe. I think there's one more. So there's five. Yeah. So like, there's gonna be basically like five big GPs worth of like really intense high level pioneer played. You know, five good results, which is more intense paper play than there has been in the last three years for any format. Yeah, and I mean, also just talking about the RCs, 
and we've had this conversation off show, I think. I don't know if you had it on show, but in a lot of ways, they are the regional Pro Tours level of like player and caliber and thing you can expect from right before the pandemic. And we saw how different Pioneer looked just with that. Now, the Pioneer format was much younger at the time, but it looked really different after the first regional Pro Tour in Europe to the one in the States in Arizona to the next one in uh, the APAC region. And they, the format moved really quickly. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see if the format can move as quickly now and kind of what will come out of it. Cause they're, you know, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll just say this doesn't really matter, especially with how like the episodes coming out. And if they're a CC listener, it's fine. But like the Kruger's fire deck, I think is really good actually, but it has like a big mono green problem. And the way I'm seeing a lot of people build Kruger fires only exacerbates that problem. And like the version that I have that I almost played for the RC and technically still could is like very different than their deck. It is like nine to 10 cards different. And I just keep seeing people copy pasting these same mana bases and these same threats. And it just feels like it's wrong. And they're not even trying to fix that matchup. And I don't know. It's just like the things that I did differently don't make your deck worse against all the other decks. They just make your deck play on curve better. And so I don't know. It's just really weird. And it's one of those things where... And I know you've experienced this before at the Pro Tour before and stuff where it's like, are we just stupid? Are we like overestimating these decks? Or is like, is this actually a meaningful difference in the deck? Yeah. But that's what my always bring moment is that kind of stuff. It'll be really, really (laughs) cool to see that all shake out. Yeah. Regardless, though, we do want to thank our sponsor, Game Grid Lehigh. Uh, If you want to go and support the show, buying cards from them is one of the best ways to do it. If you might be having RC a type event, you know, like an RCQ coming up, you can go there, use the code in the show description in order to get 10% off. It's going to be super awesome. They're a big supporter of the show. They helped us a bunch and are helping put on our standard tournament. If you're a diamond level patron, which is the $10 tier, you get into that tournament for free. The tournament is just $10 to enter and it's standard on arena uh, December 3rd. So that is super exciting. There's going to be a lot going on there. Um, if you're going to enter that event, you might as well just join the Patreon and get the other benefits and stuff like that too. But, you know, you're happy to enter that. Normally, you can find it on M2G Melee and on our Patreon uh, if you're a member of $10 or more there. And just in general, the Patreon is a great way to support the show. The show will always be free. But if you wanted, you know, to give a little bit more or something like that, or maybe think you might get something out of the tiers and bonuses stuff going with it, Definitely want to check that out. Some of the cool bonuses are access to the Discord. There's a lot of people talking often. There's uh, bonus episodes. Abe and I recorded one uh, last week, actually, where we went over some stuff for the Brothers War and answered some questions from listeners. So it's kind of a... The, the bonus episodes are typically like a topic plus extra Patreon questions. Uh, and the Patreon questions are something that gets on the show each week. So that's a way to get your kind of thoughts and vibe checks on the show. And uh, yeah, if you don't get them there, you get them in the Patreon-only episode each month. So... If you want to support the show, it's a great way to do it. But Abe, I think it is time to talk about our main topic. And that's everything you need to know for the RC. We've already kind of talked about it a little bit. We talked about a little bit about Phoenix and stuff. Um, but we're going to kind of talk about a couple decks here, listeners, and go over them. And then we're going to go over a couple other things and hopefully help get you ready for the RC if you haven't had too, too much time to prepare people, or maybe you're going down to LCQ or something like that. So Abe, I want to start with Rakdos. This is the deck you just played in the SCG this past weekend. I know you've worked on a bunch. And when we last talked about Pioneer in a big way, we did our meta mega ranking show. Rakdos was the s- most successful deck on MTGO at the time. And I think it's basically that and green are still one and two uh, in some order. So what do you think about Rakdos? Do you still feel like it's really good? What do you feel about it going into Brothers War, etc.? Yeah, I think Rakdos is still like a very very good deck 
for the format. It's something that has game in every matchup. I'm starting to cool off a bit on how close the matchup is with green. I think that as the green pilots have gotten better and their plans for beating things like Extinction Event um, and the way that they're like using their flex spots and stuff as those have hammered out to be like either Sky Sovereigns or uh, what have you have have as that's become more of the plan um they've gotten much better at dwarfing what red black is doing and that's been a bit of a bit of a problem but when it's not green there's just so many decks in the format where rakdos gives you i feel advantage playing the matchup or or i feel at least not more than than like a half step behind you know and so on any given sunday i would never be surprised to see Rakdos win still. I still think it's the deck that if I were qualified and playing the RC, I would just bring in play. I think it gains a lot from um, from Misery Shadow. Like structurally, I think that that card will change a lot about uh, some of the issues that I have with playing Rakdos. I think like its threats are some of the the weakest parts of it, and this card I think will be a really really potent threat for it. But yeah, it's it's really just a bread and butter you know, thought sees and cards that generate card advantage, uh, ways to pick apart the opponent and kind of dissect any game plan, good ways to interact, gets to play four bone crusher giant, um, which is still one of the best cards in the format. And, and you really just do have a lot of game against just about everything. So I, I agree with all that. And I, I think it is hard to undersell how good bone crusher giant is. Uh, and I feel like we haven't talked about enough on the show where that card it's basically like the best anti-aggro card in all of Pioneer. And it's like fail rate in your deck is like shock the control deck into turn play a 4-3 go. And so it's just very strong. And it basically always two for winning your aggro opponents really does help Rakdos kind of stabilize and lock up games in a way that I think if you just kind of quickly glance at the deck and haven't played it much, maybe doesn't quite seem as true as people say it is. You know, you think like, oh, maybe your thoughts need to line up more. Maybe, you know, it's a line up these dread boars. And there's some extent of that being true. Bonecrusher Giant just honestly demolishes so, so many decks in the format. So, yeah, something that I heard said a lot over the weekend was that there were Pioneer players who were like, you know, I really like Pioneer sometimes, but I feel like all the decks, except for Rakdos, just have these games where the deck just draws and just doesn't function. And Rakdos kind of has, like, it's not doing anything super powerful like a lot of these other decks are, because there are draws you have with just about every other deck in the format where you're like, this deck's unbeatable, it's the most powerful thing, it can beat anything if I draw like this, but then it has draws where it just does not seem functional. Rakdos never has that issue. Its mana is really good because you're a very base black deck with, like, a few red cards you need to cast. You only need one red source. You play a ton of utility lands. Um, so you're never really flooded. You have a lot of ways to make sure you hit your land drops. A lot of your interaction spells are really cheap. So you take a game long enough, you draw enough lands to like really play a game. But your cards are never really individually that powerful, such that you're doing anything unfair. So and that's really the biggest trade-off to me, is that if you're someone who like does not want to play games where you feel like you're just losing your deck, not doing its thing, Rakdos never doesn't do its thing. Rakdos only ever really loses when the opponents that gets to do its thing because it doesn't disrupt it well. And that is one of also the big selling points of Rakdos is you mentioned how it kind of always does its thing, but also it's pretty good at breaking up things. So if your opponent's deck, like you mentioned in Pioneer, they're all kind of two cards away from being like a bad modern deck, right? But a bad modern deck 
would be the best deck in Pioneer. So it's kind of like, okay, if I can Thought Seize or, you know, Stomp if your deck's weak to that, you know, I can do these sort of things to break you up and kind of pressure you quickly, uh, then your deck kind of just falls apart. Sort of in the vein of, like, the Mono Black Aggro deck that we saw at the beginning of Pioneer where we had, like, Thought Seize Smuggler's Copter. And that deck killed much quicker than the Rakdos deck does and couldn't grind quite as much, but kind of a similar idea of, like, my creatures have a low fail rate, I kill you all the time, I disrupt you a little bit. So... I think that is a uh, very a good way to describe Rakdos, how you did their Abe, where it just doesn't really fall apart. I think Mono White, uh, if you want to go into that one real quick, your little out of order, I think is a very similar style, where the Mono White deck, uh, I don't think is actually strong in a lot of ways. I think it is strong because it has a low fail rate, and it kind of just consistently does its thing and pressures the opponent. And much like Rakdos, that is sort of the angle in which it's trying to do, where it's like, hey, my deck kind of always functions... I always kind of put some pressure on you. And, you know, if you stumble too much, something like Thalia or a couple of Thalia's lieutenants are going to just run you over and you can't afford to have that sort of stumble. But what do you think about White? Do you agree with that or? Yeah, definitely. I think that between having Brave the Elements as this like huge way to push through decks that try to stabilize against just the, the I'm going to curve out uh, games that Mono White has, as well as breaking through specifically like the mono green or it's all or even just doing something like protecting adeline from a removal spell can be like make or break but really just like you said creatures have a low fail rate the deck is just a bunch of creatures thalia is super thalia is like the epitome of the card that punishes your deck for being a little clunky or drawing a little weird sometimes because as soon as your spells stop lining up on curve if your deck's not really efficient and built to handle that the whole game's going to spiral out of control and you're going to take an extra, like, five damage in a combat that you couldn't afford to take because you had to spend your whole turn as opposed to two spelling on a pivotal turn. And and that's enough for all of the efficient creatures in white to really capitalize on. And I think that, you know, there's a bunch of really, really cute ways to attack the format, but this is a very classic way to attack the format that does really put all of your opponent's draws to the test. Uh, even in the matchups where, like, even against Rakdos, where you... Rakdos is pretty favored in the matchup because their deck is built to beat a deck like like Mono White. You still have a ton of game because of the mid-range problem where you're not going to draw always the right set of, of cards to answer what's going on the other, on the opponent's side. And on top of that, things like Thalia or things like Brave the Elements can really just punch a hole in what you're trying to do to interact with um, and, and make the game impossible to rein in. So yeah, I, th- I think that Mono White is another one of those decks that doesn't fall apart to itself so much as much as it does like well it falls apart because it's a white weenie deck and at a certain point gets outclassed as opposed to well i didn't draw the right card i didn't draw you know my my card that takes my deck over the top in the way that like so like mono green not ever drawing a nykthos or not ever like hitting a storm in the festival or a, a cavalier to really go off might have 100 mm-hmm. white i i think for it's right we kind of nagged on it a little bit there but i do think it is good like Having a low fail rate and being proactive is, like, a fine place to be. It's not high on my personal list of things I would play for the RC, but it is still, like, a totally reasonable choice. And I would be very hesitant of anyone that, like, were to laugh someone out of the room for playing that deck. Well, I don't think it's, like, the best thing you could play. I think that's Mono Green, which we'll get into in a second. It is just totally reasonable and, like, a totally fine place to be. Yeah, no, I mean, Kellen, friend of the show, Kellen... Uh, Kellen Pastor, he played Mono White. He asked me if he should play the big Mono White deck, 
or the little mono white deck on Friday. <laughs> and I was like, you should absolutely play the little mono white deck. And he very easily like ran it up and made it all the way. Uh, I think all the way to the top eight before he lost to Grease Fang. But, mm-hmm. you know, like the deck is really good and it does just put all of your opponents to the test. And if you're playing it well, there's a ton of room to be gained there. I, I would not would not ever discount it and never, you know, treat it as a joke. Because it is really mm-hmm. seriously a, a very strong practice deck. But we can't avoid the elephant in the room anymore. We got we can't talk about jokes and proactive decks without talking about mono green devotion. And Abe, I'm kind of curious to hear what you have to think about mono green devotion. You kind of mentioned how you feel like maybe that match that match with Rakdos has changed a little bit. Have your thoughts on green changed much? Where were you? Because when we last talked to the show, uh, all three of us were really high on this deck and Rakdos as like kind of one A and one B of the format, depending on the weekend. How has that changed for you? Is that the same or? Yeah, I think I still find green to be the one A. I think that. It has the lowest fail rate of all the decks that do something really powerful. And also the ceiling on the powerful thing it's doing is really high. Like there are a lot of matchups where even if you're playing against another combo deck, you might just out combo them, even though you don't really interact well, because there aren't any decks that really do a lot of interacting well and a lot of unfair things. And specifically as far as like the Rakdos green matchup is, is played out, I think it might change a little bit towards uh like, like swinging back a little bit towards Rakdos with misery shadow giving another way to exile some of the big creatures with um like old growth troll having a a dice trigger that's very relevant and um cavalier of thorns having a dice trigger is very relevant both of those getting shut off by misery shadows static ability i think might bring it back but the green deck just at a certain point once it gets to five or six mana has so many live top decks that just put so much in play for the opponent to deal with that it really does control and dictate the pace of the game by putting out problems and um you know it also gets to play eight lanorels which is just the best way to start a game in the format it plays a ton of really resilient mana sources and like kiora is a card that a lot a lot of times people have to take an entire like two turns off to get off the board just because the value of you having one more mana or if you find that nick those 100 more mana you know, that's that's so important to be able to deny you that it's really, really hard to, to contain. So I think that this is, and, you know, until something really drastic changes, is probably the D1A of the format. Its biggest weakness is the proactive decks, but the proactive decks, like Mono White, you know, like I said, they kind of have a cap on, on what they can do and what they can handle. And some of the decks between, like on the spectrum between White and Green, as far as where they land are just so good against those proactive decks that really are, are structurally built to be good against mono green that it's hard to feel like mono green is really going to stay pushed out forever but there are definitely times where mono green will not be correct and especially something like an rc where it's known how good mono green is and everyone can kind of expect that mono green will be a very very popular deck that people will just go to because it is the best thing how many people respond to that by bringing something that has is giving up at somewhere in the middle, but really targeting beating mono green is really a big question mark for the event itself. I don't know how you feel about that, Mason. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I think that is bringing up a good point of like the mono green deck is very known, even though like innovation stuff I think is pretty on the table. Like uh, Stone Brain, Cityscape Leveler, Woodcutter, those are all cards I think are very obvious to players. So it's not even like oh you have some new cyborg tech that's really throwing people off. And even the main deck tech of things like Nico Bolas, Dragon God, in order to get edges in the mirror, post stone brain, I think is all really obvious. And we see uh, a good amount of people talking about it already. 
And I think that a lot of those changes make the deck kind of worse against these aggro decks that are just trying to pressure the green players and like try and hit that fail rate and then push through some big burst of damage. I think typically with like Brave the Elements, it's kind of the way that's happening a lot. And I think that it does stand a reason that playing Monogreen is not 100% the slam dunk choice I think some people think it is. Personally, I am kind of between Mono Green and Phoenix and a little bit of Fires, but mostly those two decks. And my, my kind of thoughts when it comes to like listening to hear you say this and kind of listening to the show, what I say to someone is Mono Green, despite its problems, if you are on the play and have Elf into Old Gross Troll against Aggro decks or Elf into Cure against Value decks, it is very hard to ever lose those games if the rest of your draws line up pretty reasonably. And that involves you being on the play and involves a fair bit of it. But no matter how prepared their deck is, it's going to be really hard for them to consistently stop what you're doing. And you are consistently the most powerful top-end deck of any deck in the format. Whatever everyone's trying to do, they really can't be stronger than you without giving up something huge in some area of their matchups. Like something like Lotus Field, maybe, where they kind of fold to a single card. So I do think it is reasonable to not play Mono Green in the tournament. But I also think that it is going to be the, probably the deck with like for example i would guess there's a minimum of two mono green players in the top eight of the rc this weekend like that's the minimum and i would expect it to have a high conversion rate today too and a fine success rate but i do think that it is going to if you are not a strong pilot at attacking and blocking and sequencing you are maybe doing yourself a disservice picking that deck because there are going to be people who are coming in with real plans to beat you and if you don't have something to stop that we aren't prepared for that you might uh, fall behind the eight ball a little bit. Yeah, and I think something else that, you know, my last thing I want to say about green is that you think about it as a combo deck, but really because all of its cards are so, like, they generate so much independent value or they are, like, or they're land or elves and they're so important to answer. The deck is really, really resilient to kind of just a little bit of interaction, which is the way that a lot of decks try to get away with beating some of the more unfair decks in the format. Like Rakdos, for example, part of the reason I think that this matchup specifically is so tough is because you have just a little bit of interaction for a while and you're like, okay, I finally got the game to a point where I kind of have them contained. I just need them to like kind of miss on a draw or two and then I can I can really have control of the game. There's just so many draws in the mono green deck once they have their mana that are those heater draws that really put the game back in their possession. It's the biggest strength of the deck. It's, it's what really sets it apart. Also with mentioning, it, it is like a combo deck a lot of the time, but it's like fail rate medium plan is often just like large static creatures ahead of curve. And that actually does go the distance in a fair bit of games or force your opponent to just like sit back stabilizing and not pushing you. And so sometimes you get your opponent down to like eight, seven life and they're ahead on board by so much, but they can't start really attacking into you because your creatures are so much bigger than their creatures. And if they start attacking full out, well, you don't have any removal, but you're going to have to start abyssing. And it just becomes really hard to like, all right, sacrifice one of my best creatures on the attack, sacrifice one of my worst creatures on the block, you know, and then it's just, you fall so far behind. So green deck, very good. Uh, you know, if you're playing the green deck this weekend, I think, and even if you feel like you couldn't answer my question that I asked earlier with super confidence, I, you know, would be hard pressed to say playing anything else. Um, I think you have to be really confident in your plans and everything to play anything else. 
uh, if you're already going to play green versus something, which is where a lot of the indecisiveness personally comes. Before we get to the other deck, I was going to talk about probably the other deck that's kind of... And what's one thing worth mentioning, too, and we're talking about both these decks, is Modern Green is, like, one of the decks that is only one card away from being a bad modern deck, and the other deck is Grease Fang, where both those decks just kind of need one more card, and they're kind of bad modern decks, right? Like we talked about before, and, like, that would be, like, the best thing in Pioneer. Modern Green is, like, got these weird flex slots that it kind of needs, like, something really good to kind of kind of fill the deck out, and then really it's just sideboard stuff. And Grease Fang is kind of one card away from being a consistent card to add to the deck for enabling it that has a low fail rate. And the Grease Fang deck has consistently proven to be one of the best proactive things in the format. While it does have kind of an awkward matchup against the card card and the great creator, we've seen time and time again how it can overcome that. And just in general, on the play, you know, if you go like nothing like thought sees your opponent or whatever, replace your supplier, it doesn't really matter, and to like Seda Wayfinder into Grease Fang that sort of draw will overpower your mono-green opponents, even if they have Karn a lot of time. And basically, everyone else in the format can't keep up with that if it resolves. So I, I don't know how you feel about Grease Fang. Yeah, I think Grease Fang is the best of the decks that seeks to to get under mono-green without having to engage in, like, the ways that, that like, the get-under-them decks, the kind of the aggressive decks really usually try to engage. It's, like, very good against Bone Crusher Giant while still being in that space of trying to end the game before it really gets to that stage that um, that a lot of decks needed to get to. I will say that Grusefang was one of the early contenders for like, oh, this is just going to be the best thing to do in Pioneer. It's super strong. You know, it's just about finding the best Grusefang deck. And then Grusefang really became something that Red Black actually is the perfect kind of response to because containing them is on an easy dimension to uh to handle for the for the red black deck so this is where the rock paper scissors the format really starts to to show itself in my opinion is like green is kind of it's advantaged against red black but kind of weak to these strategies trying to beat it red black is good against a lot of these strategies that are trying to exploit green and then there's a lot more complex dimensions we haven't really talked about in all of the other parts of Pioneer that you can really play. There's like dozens of decks in the format, truly, if you dig down and and look at what people do play. But of these decks, I think Grease Fang being the one that is trying to be good against Green, but also has a good matchup against the card Bone Crusher Giant, which is usually the card that beats the decks that beat Green, uh, is what sets it apart. Yeah, I agree. I, I also think one thing we kind of talked about for the RC and didn't end up really flushing out enough that I think does have some merit is I think there's a lot of work being done on Grease Fang in order to solve the hate cards and the threats presented to you in an efficient way. So like how many Raven Fieldments do I play versus how many Fractures versus how many Terra Sunders versus how many Abrupt Decays, right? Like that sort of thing is a big part of figuring out Grease Fang right now. But I think there's a reasonable amount of space to be like, okay, this was my game one deck. I'm going to need some out of that stuff we just talked about, but can I pivot away from these Parkelions and play more of a real game somehow? And we've seen some out of this with players playing more Sky Sovereigns in the main deck. So they have kind of a middle artifact vehicle to hit off Grease Fang that plays a fair game pretty well. But I think in general, Cyborg like that is underexplored and it's weird going to an open deck list tournament like, hey, 
do am I supposed to have a pivot plan they can kind of see? Will they see it? Like if they read it? Yeah. You know, so it's yeah, a I weird think, spot to be in. I think that effect is also kind of why the Abzan Grease Fang deck has been the build. Like a lot of people talked about Esper Grease Fang or Mardu Grease Fang um, earlier on in the format, but Essex's Chariot specifically is kind of that card that gives you a pivot plan against things like Graveyard Hate that traditionally shut the deck down and it does line up really well. But there is a lot of talk when people talk about, oh, is open necklace better or worse, you know, because they're scouting versus, you know, there's no innovation. This is one of the spaces where you could really have a, an innovative, clever plan and get away with it for, for an event. Um, and then, of course, you know, once the event's over, everyone kind of knows and you have to go back to the drawing board and how you're going to kind of juke people. But that doesn't really exist in the same way because you're never going to catch anyone kind of when they're not looking, um, not being prepared for whatever you're about to do. Fang, another good deck for sure. Phoenix was the next deck we wanted to talk about. It's funny, we mentioned at the beginning of the show, some play draw stuff with Phoenix and Rakdos and whatnot. I think the Phoenix deck is pretty good. The Phoenix deck strikes me as Rakdos, but with a better green sideboard plan and kind of a worse plan versus some other decks. Where if the cards Stroke and Aether Gust line up well against what you're doing... Uh, and what you expect to see the most of, then Phoenix kind of fits that role of being the interactive deck that, um, you know, kind of plays that middle ground you mentioned pretty well. But the Phoenix deck does have, like, kind of a real weakness in the head-to-head against uh, Rakdos midrange. So, I don't know, it's kind of my, like, number two back pocket choice. I got it right here, sleeved up, ready to go for the RC uh, if I wanted to, but it is not clear to me that it is 100% like actually better than playing Rakdos if you want to do that sort of thing. And the cyber cards are good, but if they don't line up well, you are running into some things like the hate that people are bringing for Grease Fang and stuff like that. And the deck has done better in the last couple of weeks and people have learned it's good, so there's more eyes on it. So I don't know how you feel about all this. I think that Phoenix has so much room to be customized and explored in a similar vein Teractos, but people have spent less time doing it because of so how many options there are. But I would say that Phoenix is a Parmesan deck. You know what I mean, Mason? It's oh, got access to some Parmesan in the form of like a thing in the ice and temporal trespass and some Phoenixes or just even just Phoenix alone is an is an angle that you get access to where sometimes you just have draws that present a clock way faster than anyone would be able to deal with. And that's backed up by removal that answers the threats in the early part of the game. And so something that Rakdos struggles with is getting the game to a point where it has to kind of spend a lot of its time and mana, you know, presenting answers to things that the opponent's doing. And then it kind of has to develop how it's going to win the game. Mm-hmm. Arclight Phoenix lets Phoenix focus on how I'm interacting, especially with Monogreen. I'm going to, you know... Use a Spikefield Hazard and a Fiery Impulse to kill your old Growth Trolls from its exiled, or even just pick off your Llanowar Elves and set up and buy time and start putting pressure on you because threats are so much cheaper. And it gets like Arclight Phoenix for free without actually spending mana on it. So it's interacting and developing at the same time. Uh, really, really matters in that matchup. But at the same time, you lose out on having kind of the raw power and the the quality of interaction you get over the course of a really long game definitely dwindles and then your reliance on your graveyard is is a much more exploitable weakness out of the phoenix deck so i think that you know it really depends on what it is you're trying to do but 
this deck is it's not as controlling maybe as Rakdos is, but Rakdos is just trying to play really fair, spend mana on all the things it's doing, and then be ahead on all the resource exchanges. It's trying to kind of muscle through and, and get a few big bursts in cheap to make up for the fact that it might have to two for one itself on a card every now and then because it doesn't have the same quality of answer that Rakdos does. And in some matchups that matters, but in a lot of them, right now at least, uh, it, it hasn't been mattering. I, I also think, <laughs> talking about the Rakdos v. Phoenix matchup, and it was interesting to hear you say you were having some trouble with it. My experience has been game one, Phoenix pretty far ahead. Like, not like a significant amount, but like favored, having the card like Treasure. If the card Treasure Cruise resolves, that puts you really far ahead, I think, in a lot of games. And we saw that uh, play out when uh, Misplaced Ginger played against Canister on stream. And then th those two kind of played like a five set match or five match set and then got on a call and talked for a little bit. And basically what they landed on, which I think is right, is that if the card Treasure Cruise resolves, the advantage bar moves towards the Is It Phoenix player. Um, and then post-board, it is just really hard to resolve the card Treasure Cruise. I, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I kind of feel like the actual thing that matters in the in the game is much more than Treasure Cruise is pieces of the puzzle mm -hmm. because it is a raw card advantage spell that yeah, it enables Treasure Cruise, but also it's the way you're really finding those Phoenixes, the way that you're setting up to to have the resources to continue to slog um, through whatever Rakdos is doing. Because you're finding, that's how you're finding your spells and you're finding your mana for the Cruises, which, especially in game one, are not getting shut down. And then in the post-board games, I personally have approached them, and it's kind of changed, it really depends on how the Phoenix player is approaching it, but as Rakdos, what I've found to be an effective strategy is to try to attrition out all of the threats rather than trying to play a game that is kind of mid-ranging with both of them, really t assuming the role of control. And sure, some of that involves like playing out graveyard trespassers and shieldreds. And if they go unchecked, you're definitely becoming the aggressor in the game. But when you have cards like Extinction Event and you have access to go blank and your discard spells to keep them from entering kind of stage two of the game where they've resolved the pieces and then can set up for a treasure cruise or they're just able to build a graveyard and resolve a cruise and, and hang with you into the mid to late game because of the extra burst of cards when you're able to keep them from doing that then like anything really across the finish line but in the games where that doesn't happen you really need to be focused on how are you winning the big picture and by focusing on the big picture and part of being on the draw is denying the denying the resource and allowing yourself to play like, you know, two go blanks and your duresses and your thought seizes all, all having that all in your deck without going down too many cards to actually do something in the game. Like that was a big part of the motivation for us was that if you have the discard spells, you really just want to give yourself the most opportunity to catch a pieces of the puzzle in the early game before they're able to kind of spiral out of control with their treasure cruises. And pieces was the big card more so than treasure cruise because three random cards is a lot but if none of those cards are like like the five cards that you get to see and picking two of them and bidding three of them is just so mm -hmm. much more value in the way the games play out yeah i think we're pretty similar on a lot of it um but yeah that was interesting here hope that was helpful if you were a rakdos or a phoenix player curious about that matchup it's been a high value episode the last couple decks to talk about here i think are ones that 
if you weren't paying close attention to Pioneer the last few weeks, might catch you off guard. And you might even think our memes are the first one. Uh, but also, if you're the Angels deck, I don't think this is a meme, Abe. I, I did commentary for the NRG circuit, and we had someone win the 5K with the Angels deck. And I, I said it on stream, and I think some of people thought I was just doing the hype up thing, which you're going to hype up any deck that wins, I think, on coverage. That's fair. But the Angels deck is very good at being an evasive aggro deck. So you can fly over the top of the mono green deck and kind of just kill them that way and then gain so much life and has basically unblockable in other aggro matchups where the angels deck just sort of like trumps things like mono white where if you're hitting each other for the same amount of damage but i'm gaining six life a turn cycle how do you ever win that race so i think the angels deck is very good and a totally reasonable choice going into the pioneer rcqs right now yeah i think that like and the next stuff we'll talk about it kind of plays in this too but i think that angels in the same way that Spirits in Modern, like, three or four years ago, was a deck that, like, the fact it took to the air made it so it was the only deck you could really play that was trying to attack on that angle of putting a bunch of tribal stuff into play, having a big air force, and then had a little bit of interaction. In this case, Life Gain really is kind of the interaction uh, of the format, and because by having Flying Creatures you can kind of pressure the unfair accesses of, like, mono green. If you have some flying creatures, maybe you're not able to outrace the combo, but you're going to force them to, like, you're going to outrace their ability to untap with their planeswalkers in a turn. And that can be really, really important in the same way that by just having a bunch of creatures that gain a bunch of life and have flying, you're going to trump a bunch of the aggro decks that are just playing creatures on the board. And, like, like we're talking about Gruul, one of the biggest strengths of Gruul is that it has a bunch of big creatures that are resilient to the removal in the format. They're, they line up really well against that. And then they have, like, Sky Sovereign to kind of put them over the top if they need it. So they have a bunch of independently good cards. Angels has a similar set of individually good cards, but then have a little more synergy and naturally go over the top of the Gruul deck and kind of can sidestep everything the Gruul deck's trying to do of... Like, okay, yeah, you attack me with a Lovestruck Beast. I'll just take it, and then, you know, because I have a Bishop of Wings, and I have another Angel in my hand, I'll just gain all of that back, and you have no way to really stop me because your Lovestruck Beast on the ground doesn't do anything to keep me from racing you, which is, like, a big draw of, of the Gruul deck in how it handles a lot of the aggressive matchups. So, yeah, I think Angel's really well positioned. It was another deck that performed really, really well in Philadelphia. I think it was two copies in the top eight. Maybe in the top eight and Ivan Esperino got uh 15th with it. Yeah. So missing top yeah. It was like, breakers. it was one of the last, I think it was the last undefeated deck. It was like definitely, it was going, it was making a really, really deep run on day one. And I know that it did really well on day two as well. And I think it did really well in the 5k on Sunday as well. So it's a deck that's like stock has been rising because I think that all of the decks, the other decks in the format don't really have good answers to what it's doing. And structurally it's just, linear and powerful enough that the things it's doing line up well. I do think the mono green matchup is probably not as good as it looks, but like I said, having access to a bunch of flying creatures means that you can get past a single cavalier. Like, sure, you have to lose one of your creatures, but your angels can get so big because of cards like Giada or Youthful Valkyrie just getting big or um, Righteous Valkyrie giving your team plus two plus two that a five six reach, which normally is a death knell for any deck trying to attack in the air, you can afford to attack into it, and that, that really changes the dynamic a ton. 
Yep, I agree. Let's talk about the Gruel deck. You mentioned some there. The Gruel vehicle deck, if you haven't seen it, it's like eight elves. Some of the best three drops we've seen in a while. And like Reckless Stormseeker, Love Truck Beast, Bonecrusher Giant. Vehicles. And some removal. That's the deck. Everyone calls it Gruel vehicle. I call it Gruel midrange. Do you have anything you want to say about it, Abe? I know you mentioned about some there a second ago. We're talking about like what Angels is doing. But I wanted to let you finish your thoughts if you had any. Yeah, I think that the Gruel deck, if you play it, I mean, it wound up winning the 30k in Philly. And I think that it's one of those decks that feels really bad when you play it, but all the things it's doing are really good. It really is just a pile of good statted cards, good efficient threats in the format. And like we said at the top of this topic, you know, putting decks to the test is a real thing. And if your deck is doing something linear and powerful and you're forcing your opponent to not be stumbling or not being like being unable to present the right answers to your questions, then this deck is good because it does exactly that to so much of the format. I do think that more people should play more copies of the Crow Noir. That card is really messed up. And I think that with all the decks that are kind of seeing rising stock right now, with the exception of maybe Arclight Phoenix, the Crow Noir is really good against all of them. Uh, and so, so that would be a card that if I was going to be interested in Gruul, I would try to make sure I'd play at least two copies of the full four might be too much. Uh, you probably want access to them, but at least two copies in the main deck, because I think that it's just one of the best cards in the format uh, for the Gruul deck. Yeah, the, the Gruul deck, I think Abe did a great job there. Like, when you play it, sometimes it isn't super impressive if you look at things just like what your cards are doing, but how they line up and interact with the rest of the format makes it much more appealing. And deck's just pretty reasonable and strong, and it's proactive, and it has the best start we talked about earlier with the eight elves, where sometimes you just go like, Elf into Reckless Stormseeker into a Seeker's Chariot, and you just kill people. They just kind of fall over. And uh, that that is powerful. Winning, winning the game and taking over something like that is really strong, and you're able to actually grind against decks like uh, Rakdos. It, it's funny, Abe, I think a lot of people think it has like an amazing green matchup. I don't think that's the case. I think it just has elves and some flying creatures, you know, in the form of Sky Sovereign, and a couple of Crone Wars or whatever, and can kind of break through sometimes, but is it isn't like the Atarka deck where like that deck like beats up the mono green deck. I think this deck much more like, yeah, I've got biggish creatures. Love Strike Beast is bigger than Old Ghost Troll. I can kind of attack you a little bit. So yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's got plans for that matchup. And a Crone mm -hmm. War, I think is a big part of that. I think if you don't have that card, it's a lot harder, but it's definitely one of those decks where every time I've lost to it, kind of like thought to myself, like, how did I lose that game? Like, where did it all go wrong? And the answer is always, in my head, it just comes down to Lovestruck Beast is really big. And, like, Reckless Stormseeker gave a Gigantha haste or something after I thought I had the game stabilized. And that was just a lot of damage. And so yeah. it's hard to discount just the effectiveness of creatures on rate. And you'll win a lot of games that it feels like, even to your opponent, like, they shouldn't have lost, quote-unquote, uh, just because your cards were the good cards at attacking. Well, we want to talk about open decklist a little bit because we know for a lot of listeners, this might be your first time playing an open decklist tournament. And, you know, hey, it's like a newer thing in the history of Magic, probably the last three or four years. All the top REL tournaments have been open decklist, but it wasn't that way for a long time. And Abe, do you have any tricks or tips to help people out open decklist? Yeah, so thoughts? this was something that actually brought me a ton of success when there was the lotus box series on mtg melee and also on the um the scg online tour 
uh, a few years ago was just taking the time to and, and developing the skill because it really is a skill that helps a lot in magic something that i got from just reading decklist dump art like articles and reading all the deck lists that I could see on Goldfish and then piecing together, like, how does this deck handle this problem? But looking at it from, okay, I can see my opponent's deck. How are they going to sideboard against me? What am I going to need to be prepared for? And looking at that, how should I sideboard against them? It's like taking an open note test. When you have access to that information, it gives you so much more to work with to make sure you're not missing anything in your, like, last couple of sideboarding choices of, oh, do I want more copies of this or more copies of that? Like, should I have this counter magic or should I have this removal spell? Those questions kind of answer themselves once you put yourself in the mindset of, okay, I'm my opponent. I think my opponent, like my opponent's deck list clearly shows they have a plan to do something against me. What exactly is that plan? The numbers probably map pretty clearly if you're playing against someone at the RC who has put in time to prepare, so it should be pretty clear cut to what's going to come out and what's going to come in, then think about what is it you're going to do to beat that. I think if you do that every round that you see your opponent's deck list and your player is playing the RC, you will find that it is a lot less stressful to kind of know what is supposed to be playing around, navigate the whole game um, from the top down, and that will really, really help you. Yeah, that was the big thing I was going to emphasize is sometimes when you're playing, you get in these spots where you've hit the unlosable stake portion of the game. And it's like, okay, I'm going to afford them an extra, let's say, 1% to win the game by playing in a way to beat X card, right? Even though it's like a card that maybe you haven't seen yet, but it's reasonable for them to have their sideboards like that. But when you know their whole sideboard, it's like, oh, I don't need to worry about spell pierce. They have two and there's two in the graveyard, you know, or something along those lines. And so you can kind of play with a lot more impunity and just sort of do your thing you're trying to do. So I, I agree with Abe's thing there. Just kind of look at it. And if you're unsure too, maybe like you haven't had the most time in the world to prepare, right? Because some people just have busy lives. You just don't have time to prepare for the RC, but you qualified and you kind of want to do a GP weekend thing, see your favorite podcast host, Mason Clark. And so you go out to the RC, you know, and uh, you're like, what am I supposed to do? Look at the deck list and also think about like, what would I like for them not to bring in against me? And what would I like for them to see them play? Right. And that's a good way to kind of know what might be changing in the deck. Right. Where it's like, oh, if they cast a lightning axe, I really don't care. But if they cast, you know, thingly ice, I'm really annoyed. That might be a hint as to what they're trying to do. It might not always line up. There might be reasons why they kept in something or didn't do something. Uh, they might just not even draw those cards, but you can kind of get a good idea there. So hopefully that's helpful. And the other thing is two-day events. I know this probably sounds silly if you've played Magic for a really long time through COVID and everything, but it is hard to understate how much of a boom we've had actually during COVID. Arena did a lot of good for getting players into the ecosystem, and we had a lot of new blood. And for two-day events, Abe, I don't want to make this the drink water, eat a banana, get good night's sleep article that, you know, everyone's written or whatever and every podcast is done. But I... Huh? I said not me not ever. <laughs> not me yet you know maybe this week i'll do it you know i kind of got a busy week i cash it in you know but that that is important stuff and just want to take a minute to talk about sort of that and i know for some players it's actually very stressful the idea of playing like if you do well at the rc right abe and you're live for getting a pro tour invite or even topping the event you're gonna play 15 rounds of magic which is a lot of magic in a weekend when a lot of things like the nrg circuit even playing out their entire top eight in one day is only nine to ten rounds 
Yeah, I think that this is where the ability to focus only on the magic you're playing and just think about the matches and not anything else really gets put to the test the most, but also shows the most value because if you, it is really mentally taxing to play that much magic and especially when you're thinking about all your games, but it gets even more taxing when you start to let the other factors of what's on the line and, you know, what else is going on around me start to bleed in um, and, and overthink things. And you really just want to make sure that just like any other weekend, like if you're someone who plays back-to-back RCQs on the weekends, you probably have played 15 rounds of Magic in in a weekend before, even with the same deck. And it's not actually that much different than that. Uh, but be sure to pace yourself and only really focus on the game that you're playing every time. And I think that's like the best, best advice I can give you. As far as two-day events go, the other thing I want to say is that we talk about a winner's metagame a lot, or at least we used to back when there were, were more two-day events. A winner's metagame is when, you know, it's what is going to be winning at the end of X amount of rounds. You know, what is going to really rise to the top. In a two-day event, they're designed such that that really does happen. 15 is a lot of rounds for a reason. And so when you're thinking about preparing and you're thinking about that famous 15th sideboard card, I would think about being in the situation where you're playing the last round, you know you're playing against other decks that are also towards the cream of the crop, you're playing for that invite to the Pro Tour. What is the most likely thing that matchup's going to be? What is going to be in the Witter's metagame? Because that is actually what's important and and how much churn there is to get there like what's really going like obviously green and red black the two de facto best decks they're going to have a good day one they're going to do well are they going to do well on that second day of now testing it again against that field what's really going to rise to the top there uh is a question that i try to ask myself and i think really does serve me well to do so 100 i think that was great The, the last thing we just have here is enjoy yourself the, the RC is like, you know, it's a thing that a lot of people worked really hard and tried and tried to get to, and not everyone gets to play the RC, but it is also kind of a fun experience. Well, it should be a fun experience if it's been like other magic tournaments like it. Uh, and you're going to be playing against a lot of people, you know, who are like, love the game just like you, people you've maybe seen online or heard of or, you know, met before or anything like that. And it's just going to be a fun time and just enjoy yourself. Like, it is important and it is cool. I should say this. It is cool to care about things and it is cool to like want to do well and put a lot of the drive in that, but don't let the weekend and the experience pass you by in the goal of doing that, especially maybe once, you know, the dreams may be dead for making it to the pro tour or whatever, where, you know, you don't make day two, uh, you know, you still have a bunch of magic ahead of you potentially. Cause there are, I think it's a pioneer 10 K or 15 K on Sunday. So like there's still that you can play too. So, you know, blah, blah. There's a lot going on. So, yeah, I think I also want to say a big part for me of enjoying myself with these events is getting to meet new people and connect with new people who also love magic. And if you're someone who feels like they don't really have as strong a network of players who really take magic as seriously as they want to, every player you play against the RC is is someone who qualified for the RC. That's every time that's an opportunity for you to connect with someone and have an experience with someone that is possibly as excited about the idea of playing competitive magic as you are and is interested in you know growing their network of people that they can talk to about ideas and test with so if you have someone who you play a really fun match against you both have a good time you're both really enjoying yourself 
that's a great opportunity to grow your magic circle and gain another person who you can talk to about magic in that way, who you know is someone who is on that same level as you. And I think especially if you're someone who who listens to this podcast and is really interested in that, really wants to get all that insight and wants to expand their knowledge and wants to learn and grow, that is possibly one of the biggest things you could get out of enjoying yourself at this event is meeting friends who you can talk about with magic. That's something I got a ton of through my time grinding PTQs or then, you know, SCGs and playing the Pro Tour. Like all of that, the biggest thing that was value add for me and enjoying myself was the people, you know, to the gathering. Mm-hmm. so that's gonna do it for our main topic today hopefully this was helpful for you for the rc uh, and you know if you have any other solar events hopefully the kind of the pioneer talk was useful maybe you end up playing old san diego here in uh, i think it's like april so you know maybe you just get to re-listen to some of these later parts for that but that's gonna do it for our main topic we do have our patreon question patreon is a way to support the show it's always gonna be free but you can get back and one of the cool things about being a patron is you get to ask questions. You might get yours run the show. We have a question from Yeoman this week, Abe. And the question is, what's the deck you wish you had time before the RC to delve into more fully? This is an interesting question, too, because our Canadian friends and stuff, their RCs, they do have more time. You know, it's it's really just me in this equation that doesn't have more time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so I think the fact that I, I mean, if I had a hyperbolic time chamber and I could spend a year just doing whatever trying to figure out this deck and it would take only a day i would go in there and i would figure out the enigmatic incarnation deck i think that there's so much to do there and there's so many chains and so many unexplored ideas that that deck can like really change i'm not even sure that like and this might be blasphemous i'm not even sure that fire's invention is very good in the deck anymore. Yeah, I, I also wonder if the weirdly clunky card that opens up double spelling is not what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, like, I, uh, I'm not sure I actually want to build my deck so that I'm trying to just double spell a bunch of things, because a bunch of my things at a certain point, they now the way the deck's built, so many of your things are just two mana, and they're trying to get a three mana card, or they're like, Fable which is generating value, and then you get, like, a four-mana card. But I'm not really doing anything for that much mana or trying to do too expensive things that often. And now that that's playing Wolf Haven, there's just so much. There's so much to explore there. There's so much to dig into. And I think the Enigmatic Incarnation just presents such a neat puzzle that it has to be... It has to be the deck that needs the most exploration, and that's where I wish I could spend more time. Yeah, that that's a good one. I think along that same line of like hyperbolic time chamber one year in a day, it might be Phoenix and really just spending a lot of time exploring all the different sideboard ways to Phoenix. Cause like, for example, of cards I've talked about playing in my sideboard for this weekend are as many great cards as Hall of the Storm Giants, number three and four, Hazaret, Karanos, the list goes on and on. I can't remember the names of cards right now, but like there have been a lot of things I think some of them more explored than others but it's like oh what if we did things like this and that's not even getting into stuff like we mentioned earlier it's like okay am i supposed to be taking the draw in like this matchup like let's figure this out how am i supposed to sideboard am i supposed to take all my phoenixes out in this matchup i think i am and so i I think that'd be a deck where like abe mentioned it hasn't as much time on it to explore as fully as like ratchet has had and it hasn't had a misplaced ginger outside of like Nathan Stewart, our world champion, and he kind of just plays it for the big event and then drops it 
every time. He, like, qualifies for the mocks, plays at the mocks, and then he just doesn't play it again. And every time he does it, he, it the deck moves forward a good bit, but we don't have someone championing that deck all the time. Yeah, we don't um, have so, someone putting in the 10,000 hours that, yeah. that Misplaced Ginger puts in. And that is, like, important to a deck, and, you know... There are times where I, I've, you know, at the beginning of, like, back in June, I talked about, like, just play Phoenix, like, all the time and really learn it. But there are lots of reasons not to play decks for that whole time. And, like, personally, it's like, well, I've got to look at, like, a lot of decks. i got to make content or whatever. And so I really wish I had more time to explore the Phoenix deck and kind of know. Um, and, like, really know. But I think that that is that is the one. Either that or the, uh, did you see the Indomitable Creativity deck I tweeted out this weekend? Was it the blue-red creativity deck? Because I've seen that deck a lot. So it, it was a blue-red Portal to Phyrexia's creativity deck that's Jeskai with Refurbish. And then you sideboard into the other combo. And so you just, you're just a control deck that portals to Phyrexia, kills their stuff, and just kills them with their own things. But what if they just don't have anything? Have cre- oh, that's part of the problem. That, that is, I mean, here's the thing. This, this idea's been in my head, and I've been really busy with a lot of stuff going on in life and had the RC. And I don't know how to solve these problems. So if I had more time, I could look into this. But my current solution to your question, Abe, is I have Xenagos and World's Fire more on my sideboard. And I bring those back in, and I have, like, a transformational sideboard. But if they just don't have creatures, my plan is simply to lose. I can't beat everything in Pioneer. Yeah. Like, I'll, unironically. I'll see about renting some Hyperbolic Time Chamber place, and then I'll let you figure that out. All right, nice. Yeah, if you could look into it, that'd be really helpful. But yeah, thank you so much, Roman, for that question. Another way to get a question is to go to youtube.com slash ccmtg. We don't have a YouTube question this week, unfortunately, from all that. But Spencer's not here on the show this week, and he kind of put in the Patreon Discord. He'd like for us to guess what deck we think he would like the Hyperbolic Time Chamber on. And so, Abe, what do you think is the Pioneer deck that Spencer wishes he had more time to test? This is tough. So... There's two leading candidates for me. That's how I feel too. And there are two different things that I know Spencer loves. One would be for him to really get a chance to go deep on the Atarka ramp deck. Because I know he really loves that deck. And I also feel that he could always spend more time doing it. And he would love to do so. Two would be the Indomitable Creativity decks, because I feel like he really, really likes that scape-shifty vibe of resolving a four-mana sorcery or five-mana sorcery that wins the game instantly. Mm -hmm. And it's the closest thing you have in the format. And and so, yeah, that's that's my I like where your head's at. Yeah, I agree with the first one. The second one, I had the Mono White Yorion deck, just because Spencer kept mentioning cards from uh brothers war last week on the show about it but after hearing the thing about creativity then it does fit his vibe way more than the mono white control deck see i think spencer thinks he likes the idea of the mono white yorion control deck i just don't think he actually is gonna like playing it where it's like he's gonna get stuck in the hyper like time chamber one weekend and be like what was i thinking i have charming friends three inspector in front of me on a table for the next year you know <laughs> and like i'm flickering them with yorion to try and set up some value so that, those are my two guesses. But for the sake of locking one in, I'm going to trust him to be honest for the sake of, you know, shot calling rights. I'm going with Yorion. Okay. And I'm locking in the creativity deck. Because I think there's oh, a lot of room for some ones and twos and threes. And 
all that. And that is Spencer. As far as I can tell, that is Spencer's favorite thing about Baldur. So yeah, Spencer does love ones and twos. It's what threes and fours are made of, Mason. <laughs> he can't get to a four without a couple twos. <laughs> it's just that's just the god honest truth about math, Mason. I love I love the idea of that like your grandma's throw pillow. It's just like can't get to four of without a couple two of <laughs> on the way <laughs> but yeah so it's be curious to see we'll have to see next week we're gonna have a a little breakdown episode we're gonna go over some of the rc stuff a little bit i think and or at least in part and so we'll have to see when we get there what spencer uh would answer it so look forward to that next week on the show Abe, if someone wants to find you where can they go i mean twitter.com slash more nothings that is where i tweet and until twitter dies a glorious death uh, at the hands of our lord Elon Musk on Twitter. That's where you'll find me. When that happens, I'll have to find somewhere else to, you know, push my thoughts and accept uh, coaching inquiries. So, how about you, Mason? Yep, you can find me over at twitter.com at Mason E. Clark. I am going down with the ship until Twitter is, it's like the old, like, if there is a fan, it is I thing. I am, till Twitter is burning on fire, I'm going down with the ship there. So, uh, you can find me over there. You can find me over at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. If you want to inquire about coaching, you can message me uh, on Twitter, like we mentioned, or you can email me masoneclark at gmail.com. Find me there and you can inquire about coaching. I have a couple spots opening up. And with the RC ending or slash happening, I am now having more slots reopen. Had to bunker down a little bit to test, but uh, I got some more time slots. So if you're looking for that, hopefully that can be helpful for you. And that is basically it outside of Card Kingdom, where I have an article each and every Thursday and almost forgot for a second. But yeah. Oh, yeah. And I guess you can see me. I can announce this, too. I- I'm doing more NRG coverage. Uh, we kind of mentioned it last week on the show. Had my debut with them three weeks ago at the time, which you'll hear this, I think, or two weeks. But I'm going to be doing coverage for the uh, Mundelein NRG. So, uh, you know, if you like magic and you like commentary or paper magic, go check that out. Um, and, you know, make sure to say nice things about me. That way Norm keeps inviting me back. But thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of CCMTG. We'll see you all next week for another episode. <laughs>